Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Megan Bay Dorman from Team Salon, welcoming you along to a special edition of our podcast featuring a world premiere from Kit Duval. Now, Kit is the award winning author of My Name is Leon, among others, and the editor of the pioneering collection Common People. So we were beyond excited to premiere her brilliant new memoir at a special salon at the London Library. Without Warning and Only Sometimes is out this week and has been receiving glowing reviews. The Guardian describes Kit as a remarkable and skilled writer and the book as a richly observed portrait of a working class childhood that finds magic in the mundane. So, without further ado, here's Damien and Kit. Enjoy! Welcome everybody to this very special salon with the fantastic Kit Duval and Abby Morgan and all of you, welcome! Uh, it's very nice to be back here at the London Library. We were here in December with Mawson Zeddy and Miriam Margulies. Was anybody here for that that night? The lovely Miriam who was crunching away on um, onions. <laughs> Um, welcome back to the London Library, which opened in 1841. Don't steal any of the books. <laughs> you can borrow them if you remember. And members include Bram Stoker, who researched Dracula here. And there's a brilliant display um, of the books that he used and the books that he wrote in um, when he was here for that. And of course, Virginia Woolf. Um, it's not as fancy as the library I went to as a child in Lanarkshire, obviously. <laughs> No, but um, that library got me here and um, I feel very, very, very much love for that library and for this library um, and for the librarians. Are any of the librarians in here tonight or have they all run off? They've, they've, been, they've been allowed to go home, it's that time. Um, anyway, so we've got two fantastic memoirs this evening. I'm really excited about them. We seem to be doing memoirs more and more at the Salon and there are more and more brilliant memoirs being published all the time and tonight will go on our podcast as well so if you want to share the love with other people after this evening please do so so my next guest uh, many of you will know and love she is the award-winning and best-selling author of books uh, including the trick to time see i can pour drinks and talk at the same time uh, and my name is leon which is coming out on the telly very soon right uh, she also came up with the idea for and edited Common People, which is an amazing collection of essays of working class voices, um, which I've got a wee story in. Um, so she's brilliant, and her memoir is too, and it's called uh, Without Warning and Only Sometimes. And look, there's a little kit on the front. Look how cute that is. Um, it's her story of growing up in this household of opposites and extremes in 1960s and 70s, mostly. Um, we meet Sheila, her wee white Irish mother who's from Wexford and has a belly full of resentment and who just basically never stays still. Um, and she becomes a de devout Jehovah's Witness uh, who believes that the world's going to end in 1975. It didn't end in 1975, unless, no, but it didn't. And her dad is Arthur, who is very much the opposite. He's lanky, he's musical, he dreams of returning to, to St. Kitts and he's spending his bus driver's wages building a house there, right? Or at least that's what he tells you. Anyway, um, Kit is caught between those worlds. The story is funny, it's beautiful. She's there as this observant little girl, seeing everything, storing up all these observations for her career that she could never dream of 
Please welcome for her world premiere, Kit Duval. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. It's very lovely. We've chatted on the telly before, but um, because we're not on the telly, we can swear now. Hooray, we do, we hooray. Do, we can do all that. Um, will you give us a wee reading? And then, I will. And then we'll, we'll chat. I'm going, I, have, I also have not read this out loud. I haven't done the audio book yet. So Are you doing the audio book? I am doing okay. the audio book. I don't trust anyone else with a bummy accent. <laughs> um, so this is from the beginning. It should need no introduction. I will die. I will die for wanting Christmas, for the slip of red ribbon from a huge box, for dreaming of the presents inside, fries, chocolate, cream, things off the telly, other children's presents. I will die for a taste of turkey and the imagined feel of the frilly white cuffs around its juicy brown leg. I will die for the dream of a mince pie I have never tasted and the magic blue flame on a Christmas pudding, just the picture of it. I will die because I want to pull a cracker, because I want to wear a hat. I didn't know about the jokes inside. I didn't know about the little gift. I will find out about them when I'm 17. I will die because I want a birthday party. I will die for my grinding embarrassment when the teacher halts the school assembly before the worship bit starts so that me and my sister can walk out. And I will die for the shame I feel when I walk back in again, past superior girls, and sniggering boys in time for the announcement of detentions and who won the art prize and who won the English prize, my sister usually. I will die because while I sit outside assembly and they sing, there is a green hill far away. I sing along, but only in my heart, worst of all in my heart. Mm. I will die when the earthquakes start. I will be walking to school and the pavement will rumble and hiccup and a crack will start under my feet, small at first, and nobody else will realise what's happening, but I will know that the end has come. Then the road splits in a zigzag fracture and the tarmac breaks in half and the buses tip in and the cars and the lampposts. And if there are any women with prams, they'll tumble into and dogs and motorbikes and trees and shops and anyone walking home with bread or potatoes, in they'll go. Everyone who doesn't believe or anyone who does believe, but doesn't do as they should, in they'll go, toppling sideways into the chasm with their mouths open, screaming for forgiveness. But it's too late because they had their chance. We all had our chance. And when we are dead, the earth will close over us so the world can heal. I skipped the cracked paving stones on my way to school because it can start at any time, the wrath of God. Any moment, without warning, stay on the watch. You do not know the day or the hour. Kim doesn't know, Tracy doesn't know, Dean doesn't know, nor Karen, not even Mom. So I stay alert, ready to straddle the split if it's not too wide, or outrun it by dashing around the corner in the opposite direction, or maybe straight inside someone's house begging them to save me. But even if I escape the earthquakes, there are so many other ways to die. The tower blocks will collapse, the lightning will strike, or the angels themselves, disguised as ordinary men, like when they came for Lot, like when they appeared to Abraham, they will call round to 70 Springfield Road, Mosley, Birmingham 13, <laughs> looking for me, looking for me in particular, me by name. I will not be forgotten when the end comes.
it's such a dramatic beginning to the it book. Is. And did you really wander through your girlhood thinking it's it's all going to end? All the time. I mean, not my girlhood. Even though I would say on a lie detector that I stopped believing uh, anything to do with Jehovah's Witnesses doctrine when I was at least 16, 17. I really didn't think I stopped believing till I was 40. Really? I can remember when I, when I was married to my husband, first got married, and he said, we need to make a short-term plan and a long-term plan. I thought he meant next week and Christmas. <laughs> why would you go into the future? Because it's, it's, it might not happen. I've never made a long-term plan, even now. Never. Really? No. You're so conditioned to thinking... I'm conditioned to think... It, it's here. It, it's ready. It's go- I, I can say in every single way that I don't... That I sort of intellectually know there is a long-term future for, for the world if, if we don't fuck up. But inside, I can die at any moment. Oh and I still God. think that. You weren't born that way. No. Um, and your mother was not a Jehovah's Witness to start. I mean, she's an Irish, Irish Catholic. Um, but she meets a woman called Stella. Yes. Tell us about Stella and her conversion. So we lived in Mosley, which is quite a middle class area of Birmingham. But we lived in a terraced house, seven of us, a tiny little house. And, you know, it's a slum. There's no other way of saying it. And my, uh, one day, this very posh English woman came. We never had English visitors. We had every other description, but not English. And she rang the bell. And we were so used to being looked down on. And Auntie Stella didn't look down on us. And she told my mum about paradise and that paradise is coming. Um, we get the chance to stroke the lions and we will live in a house with a picket fence. And we were like, Wow. And she painted this fantastic picture to my very oppressed mother, mm-hmm. who bought into it wholesale. And, and this my, was a picture of racial unity. Racial unity, enough to eat, uh, obedient children, cleanliness, miraculous cleanliness. Um, I don't know where my dad was in all that, but it was just, it was a fantasy. I mean, yeah. she, she had these books and she'd go, look at, oh, look at that, the lion with the lamb and the picket fence. Oh, look, like a Norman Rockwell painting, obviously. Yeah. And my mum was like, oh, I'll have that. So she got baptised in less than a year. Wow. I was eight, I think. So you were baptised as well at the same time? No, you can't get baptised till you're an adult. Ah, of course. Um, So none of us got baptised at that point. Um, My mum got baptised and then we would just, we would go to the meetings three times a week, two hours, three times a week after school. and you had to learn the Bible, you had to learn Jehovah's Witness doctrine, you had to read the Bible from cover to cover, then you had to go home and study a bit more on paper and answer questions and turn up and put your hand up and answer a question about the Bible. And Malachi chapter 3 verse 6 says, they love that kind of shit. Mm. Um, and I, I was, you know, we would been at school all day, mm. came home, no dinner, because there just wasn't any. Yeah. And then you'd have this quick turnaround, normally going to the meetings in your school uniform. Uh, and for two and a half hours of that, you'd get home at quarter to 10, starving, freezing. Yeah. Uh, but my mum's like, no, we've got to do this. So we did it. And what does she get out of that being there? Paradise. The, 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 
prospect of paradise. You know, it was, it was always it's over there. Yeah. It, it was, the rewards weren't now. Yeah. It should be difficult. It had to be difficult. Right. If it wasn't difficult, you weren't doing it right. You know, the, what do they say? The camel of, you know, the eye of a needle, the, the straight road, the wide road. And you'd have all these analogies why your life is basically shit. Mm. But the reward is coming. And it yeah. was always over there. So, so she would just buy into it. And what was your dad doing at, at this time? Did, did he buy into it? Did, he was just overjoyed that we didn't have Christmas and birthdays, so he didn't have to spend any money on us. Um, so he was just like, bollocks, but you know, I mean, he'd never say that. He was just like, he called my mother the crazy woman. So yeah. he just thought this was part of her craziness. And his five children were very well behaved because we were Jehovah's Witnesses. Yeah. Uh, we were very respectful. That's taught in the Bible. So in, in many ways, he was just like, this is great. You know, they'll be, they'll have no presents. They have no, uh, they're not giving me any cheek. It's great. I can save up all my money for my paradise in the West Indies. Um, was his plan to take you all there with him? Was that a plan that was discussed no. at home? No, he was just going to return home He on used his own. to say all the time to us, you know, he used to say to my mother particularly, you know when I came here, my plan was to go home and I'm going. And he used to say to us sometimes, as we got older and cheeky, he'd say, you can come if you want to. Yeah. We weren't invited. No, not at all. He was going. And like, you could go and you were like, fuck that shit. I mean, no way would I go to the West Indies. Right. And I've never been. He really? put me off it so completely, I have never been. How did he put you off it? Oh, you wouldn't get away with that in the West Indies. The West Indies mm -hmm. is really beautiful, but you wouldn't be, you know, you wouldn't be able to do this. And we were really poor. He used to tell us all the stories about him being poor. Mm. So as far as we were concerned, it was a third world country. Yeah. And so we didn't want to go. Yeah. And also he'd be there. Yeah. So why would you want to go? Um, your experience of people from St. Kitts and that your dad knew from home was that they would come to the house and visit and hang out with him. And he was very, from what, I, from what you've written about, you described this very stylish man with the, the fine mohair suits and the beautiful shoes. And he's kind of dressed in quite a luxurious way and you all are not. Yeah. You know, he's got stuff while, while you're doing without. But these people will come to the house um, and I was reading it and it's like they would look down on you because you weren't black enough. Yeah, yeah. So um, when um, West Indians came over in the 50s and the 60s, and obviously single men came first, generally speaking, single mm. men came first. They would send for their girlfriends or wives to come over. Um, what happened is the single men would come over and ha end up having relationships with white women. This is no, uh, you know, not talking badly about white women, but a lot of the white women that used to go out with back then were taking a massive chance. They were looked down on. They mm -hmm. might have been good time girls. My mother was certainly was one of those. Um, and they were looked down on by black men. And they were looked down very much so on by black women mm -hmm. who would see these white women going out with their men. Sometimes they weren't great white women. You know, they weren't clean from the black perspective, they, they were, uh, you know, ladies of the night or weren't virginal, you know, like some of the black women were that they'd left behind. And also just the very notion that the white women were looking with the black men, but looking down their nose at the black, at the black women. Mm. So there's lots of tension in the black community about that. And so we were these mixed race children mm. who were not 
both sides, from the Irish side and the black side, they'd say, they're neither one or the other. Yeah. What are these kids? And this is, you know, this is the 60s, the 50s, where there weren't, there was no mixed race community. We were such an oddity in mm. those days. You know, people say, but you're white, you're white as well. Mm. And then you'd have the black people go, you know, you've got long hair, you've got a European nose, and just generally make you feel odd. You were, the two grannies in the book, I mean, I don't know if they ever met. I would have loved to have been there when, you know, the Irish nanny and black nana yeah. finally, you know, if they, the, I don't think the universe would have opened up if they'd been in the same yeah. room. But, you know, you're not, you're not black enough for one, you're not white enough for the other. Yeah. And, and, and yet you're theirs. They, they, they claim you, but they don't. And it's just, there's, there's a sort of t tension in the book where they can say things about you, but other people can't say yes. things about you. Um, and it must just have been so confusing. You know, you, at school you were black and then at home you were Irish. And, uh, you know, we, how do you find yourself in all of that? We, we never thought it was odd. I mean, there was five of us and we thought everyone else was odd. Mm. Everyone else was weird to not have our... So we had Black Nana who, we, I mean, I didn't like her, obviously. Uh, but Black Nana didn't like us. She liked one of my sisters. She loved one of my sisters who actually had quite black features compared to the rest of us. Mm. And she loved her and she, uh, she resented us because my father had left a girlfriend and a baby in the West Indies that my grandmother knew about. Which we discover later We on. didn't know. We didn't know we had this brother in the West Indies. Um, and then my white grandmother, of course, came over to England to better herself. She didn't come over, for, as she just said to my mother, for you to marry a monkey. You know, to, to, do, to do worse than we were doing in Ireland. What are you God. doing? And she so threw she, your mum out. She threw my mother out. And she, you know, the, we had Irish cousins. And the Irish cousins used to go on Saturday but, or Sunday. And we had to go on a different day. And when we went, she used to find these little jobs for us to do to keep our little black hands, say, you know, from playing with things. So we used to wind threads and just do quiet little things and listen to my granddad play the piano, uh, piano, accordion, violin. Yeah. And now it sa that sounds really bad. It was like fun. You know, we, we were just, we loved having this whole vocabulary. There was a whole vocabulary when you speak Irish. Mm. And we spoke a different language to my grandmother and we spoke a different language to my dad, and we spoke a different language at school. All English, different vernacular, different accent, different sentence structure, different words for things, but it was all English. And you knew you would calibrate it to within a, you know, a, a, a tiny millimetre, depending on who you were talking to. So like code switching the whole time? Code switching the whole time. And then, of course, when there's five of us there, yeah. A different one, the, the authentic and true one, where we can use all the words, all the th yeah. all the vocabulary. Yeah, um, I want to talk about about the area. Um, I had not been to that part of England, which seemed to me so English, and which I first knew about um, when there was the bombings in, in Birmingham, yes. which of course affected you because at yes. that point suddenly you became Irish. Irish, yeah, and, like in the IRA. Irish. Absolutely. So I, on the day of the pub bombings, I went to school um, and I was late because the, all the buses were rerouted. And when I got to school, everyone was talking about the dirty Irish, the Irish terrorists, the stupid Irish, the bad Irish. And I'm like, 
this is not the day to admit you're Irish. And no one thought I was Irish, obviously. So I passed for not being Irish mm. and heard the things that they said about me and, and my community and my mom. Mm. And I was really shocked. I hadn't known it really that bad before. Mm. Um, and I just kept my mouth shut. I was really embarrassed to be Irish. Um, and of course, it was very difficult for my mother, for my uncles to be out and about. You know, you, my uncles and my mum got slight Irish accents and you just ask for things really quietly in case anyone heard your Irish accent and mm. they'd say, you dirty terrorists, you murderers, and there'd be a thing, you know, it was, it was a horrible time to be Irish. Um, the area you, you describe uh, and the people who live there, the different communities and how that changes over time, and it changes quite quickly, it seems, in, in, in the course of the book. So first of all, your mum has to lie um, to get the house that she gets because she's turning up with a black man and people yes. are suddenly, there's no room at the inn, yeah. you know, and then she goes along on her own. She gets, she gets the house and upturns the, the, the black man and they're <laughs> like, oh shit, there goes the neighbourhood. Yes. And actually people try and sort of sell their houses and, Absolutely. and, 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 try, and try and get away. But the neighbourhood changes, it becomes Asian people move in, yes. different communities from Asia. Um, and at one point even, quite thrillingly, the gays arrive. Yes. Um, yes. Which is deeply <laughs> thrilling to me. Um, um, and you know, and, and there's, this, there's, there's a sense of a world in flux and you're watching it all. You're sitting outside that house and you're watching it all. How does it feel when it was changing? I, I loved it. So there were five of us, and, and very often on a Saturday, there was a crummy cinema at the, at the bottom of our road, and my mother used to scrape together enough money to send the children, mm. all of us, to, um, to the cinema for like three hours, and I think it was three pence or something. She was like, get these kids out of the house. I hated going to the cinema because cinemas on our road on our road yeah. so they used to go i used to sit on the front wall and just watch people walk down the road that's that's the cinema it, yeah. to me it was like much more interesting than uh, you know whatever tom and jerry they were watching i, I used to watch the, i didn't know they were gay yeah i didn't know they were gay i knew they were different i knew people spoke about them i knew that they looked embarrassed all the time they were not comfortable walking down the road there was Maggie May, who was a bit mad. There was a woman across the road that always dressed in blue. There was a tramp. There was just so many people walking down the road. And I was thinking, why would you go anywhere else? Mm. And that was my life. I did that for years and years and years. It's my favourite thing to do. It's so interesting, having read your fiction, and particularly your short stories, you get such a strong sense of those people in that place. When you read the memoir, you kind of think, oh, here's the, here are the keys that helped me un unlock this fiction as the basis of imagination. It's so, it's so enriching to understand that bit about yes. you as a writer, it's really satisfying. Um, but you weren't reading. You, weren't, no. you, were, you, were, you were not reading. Is that because of the Jehovah's Witness? You weren't allowed to read novels? We were allowed, um, but I just couldn't think of anything worse. You know, read at school. <laughs> Says she in a library. <laughs> Read, read at apocalypse. Read at school, yeah. uh, you know, really slowly round the class. You know, three pages for Malcolm Bumford, three pages for Tony Queen, and yeah. three. Pa and I was just like, oh my god, can we read the fucking book? So <laughs> I would be like, I'm not reading it. So I, I would just like read the three pages. So I just disconnected from school completely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then you'd go to the meeting, and it was read the Bible which you had to read and you had to know and you would be tested on. Mm. So there was reading. 
the last thing I was going to do when I had my time is read. Right. I never read anything till my 20s. Yeah, what changed that? Um, I had left home when I was 16 and sex, drugs and rock and roll ensued in a big way. Um, I had a really bad time from taking too many drugs and I really worried about my mental health and stopped very suddenly after having uh, quite a bad episode. And was that weed? Were you smoking weed? Yeah, weed. Weed <laughs> came into it. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I could have tossed. No, no, she did no, everything. No, I, def I, de I never did heroin. Okay. I was really scared, really scared about heroin. Uh, practically everything else, I suppose. Um, and that's, you know, very common for people who are leaving enclosed religious communities. Yes. It's that like, it's the, well, bishop, it's the bishop's daughter, isn't it? Yeah, it's and when thing. I left, so I left, I'm 16, that's 1976. The end was coming in 75. It didn't come in 75. It was definitely going to come in 76. So when I left, if you're going to die, taste it all. Yeah. So I went out and what is that? I'll have that, I'll have that, I'll have that, I'll have more of that, I'll have more of that. And all the time I'm getting a bit older and like I'm 19 now and I End hasn't come, keep up the drugs and <laughs> sex drugs and rock and roll. And I'm literally knackered, wow. yeah. but I cannot stop because I'm going to die at any minute. And I haven't done that and I haven't been there. And I was just, and so I'm now 21 and I am at, my head's gone. Mm. I've had so much shit. Mm. Um, and I had to stop, I had to stop. And I got a job and I'd, I'd done this, ridiculous secretarial course and I got a job in the uh, very, can, we, can we just talk about the secretarial course Mike? it's very funny <laughs> right where you where you go and learn how to type like a lady lady yes, typist yes. Um, and do things like order a boiled egg in German for your boss I can still do that <laughs> yes can you order a boiled egg in German um ich möchte ein gekochtes Ei <laughs> I think the Germans in the room are like <laughs> no <laughs> That's not what you're going to get. But anyway. <laughs> so we had, to, we, it was a ridiculous course and it was yeah. so unsuited and to so me. And so sexist. It was so like, sexist. Yeah. And, and it was it's supposed to be a privilege for you to be able to order a board egg with a, you know, oh and a double God. room with blah, blah, blah for your boss. And the way that we were taught was like, you'll be so lucky if you get that job. Yeah. All the time, I'm stoned at work, I'm stoned at college. I mean, I'm stoned at college, I'm stoned going home. But, so I get through this course, which serves me well when I need it. So I'm 21, I've stopped taking drugs, I've got to get a job. Mm. Um, and I, my boss was um, a solicitor and I said to him, give me, give me some books, give me some books to read because I had nothing to do, I couldn't sleep. Mm. Um, and he gave me his top 10 books, which I went and bought. Mm. Uh, first books I've ever read and he had spent most of his life in the army so his choices are um, The Siege of Krishnapur, The Riddle of the Sands, The Red Badge of Courage, uh, War and Peace. Definitely going to get you to sleep. Yeah and I love them though. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely yeah. love them so I just went back and said another 10, another yeah. 10, another 10 so I started reading and that that became my love. It became my drug I suppose. Yeah. Um, but that was my, my introduction to literature mm. was via his tastes. Mm. Um, and it was fantastic. I haven't looked back. Were there books in the house? There was the Bible yeah. and some Jehovah's Witness doctrine books and the news of the world. Yeah. Fiction. Yeah. A lot of fiction. A lot of fiction. Yeah. <laughs> I remember my granny reading the news of the world, absolutely disgusted 
devouring it every single Sunday, every single week. She'd be like, have you read this? It's disgusting. They're all going to hell. And she'd be like, and I'd be like, ooh. And then, you know, whenever they used the word flamboyant, you knew they were talking about a gay and you were excited. <laughs> that was so exciting. Um, but you know, that, that, at, that, at that moment, you know, you weren't, you weren't reading, you weren't writing, and yet here, here you are. How, how do you make the transition from, from reader to writer to thinking, actually, I can speak when you're told, you know, most of your childhood, shut up, don't talk, um, be quiet, I never be wanted to be a writer at all. I read hundreds, hundreds, maybe thousands of books mm. from 21 to 41. Um, when I adopted a little boy who was very ill, very, very ill, and I had to give up work from, for the first time since, you know, since my 20s. And I thought, oh, I'll write a book, you know. How hard can it be? Um, <laughs> and so I thought you wrote a book which needed no editing because you were so good and you gave it to Penguin. They're the yeah. only people I'd ever heard of. Yeah. So you gave the book to Penguin. They put a wrapper on it. In about six <laughs> weeks time, it's in Waterstones, obviously. So I wrote my book. Well, I didn't write my book. I wrote about three chapters. I could not believe how shit I was. Mm. I was like, but I've got it here. Mm. Why can't I get it get onto to the page? There. Yes. Um, and I just started taking it seriously. I realised how much I loved it, and I worked on the craft. Mm. Really worked on the craft. Yeah. No. That I, I I remember when I first one of the first times I met you, you were away with your writing group, and we were at Gladstone's Library. Yes. Um, and she had this really cool writing group and I felt like such a loser because I wasn't <laughs> in it. And they, would do, and they were doing exercises every morning and, and going on walks and talking about their characters. And I was like, oh, can I come and hang out? And I was so impressed by the way that, that, that you worked at the craft and you, yeah. you, know, you realised that it was that. And, you, and also really importantly acknowledged what was shit. You know, yes. I mean, not enough writers do that. You yeah. know, and it was, it was really, really good for me to do that because I had, you know, I, I was schooled in the classics mm. and I, th and, and you know, when you read about the lives of Dickens and Tolstoy or Flaubert, mm. they didn't do an MA in creative writing. Mm. When did they learn their craft? It, you, you are led to believe that they sit down one day and they write their masterpiece. Yeah. So I thought that was going to happen to me. And of course, it, they did learn their craft. Mm. They learned it through many, many hours, through talking to their contemporaries. Yeah. But you don't know that, obviously. You just think you sit down and you write a book and it, that's it. But also, there's so much in here about class and access. And you know, when you, when you came up with the idea for Common People, it was from a place of frustration about yes. the lack of diversity of working class stories. And you know, we were both sitting here working class people. And it's like, you know, where are the voices? Where are the people who say, you know, your life, your experience is valuable beyond whippets you know, um, and flat caps? And tragedy, yes. you know, and an actual fact that that is changing. But it, but it, you know, common people was one of the things that, that changed that. At the time that you were coming up with it, did you realise it was going to have such a big impact, and that so many people were going to be so annoyed? No, I, I really didn't. What I, what I do remember is when I first got published with my name is Leon, I was interviewed by um, a political journalist who doesn't normally do literature. And I said to her, where are all the working class writers? And I didn't think she'd put it as the title of the whole piece. Mm. But I really meant genuinely, are they, you know, where are they? Where put are me they? in touch yeah. with them. Yeah. And, and there aren't. Yeah. And that is to do with access and it's to, to do with belief. It's to do with the stories we tell as working class people, our children. Mm. Certainly my parents would never, ever have thought about their children being a writer. You know, mm. you, you left school, you got a job, you contributed to the house yeah. and you would not be learning to write ever. You mm. know, that's something 
that was just rubbish that you did in, in your spare time. But also there's something as well about the stories that, that even your parents would want you to tell or not tell, which is that, you know, you write about a lot. You write a lot about being hungry. And yes. that would have been really shameful. You weren't oh. allowed to do it. And, you know, it's yeah. one of the one of the few memoirs that I've read. And, you know, and I remember that feeling as a child of, of growing up and being hungry. Um, and, you know, George used to sing yesterday, you know, you go to the buy the value range in the supermarket. And I just wanted to fucking headbutt yeah. him. I was so yeah. angry about it. I was thinking, what you think hasn't occurred to people to eat, <laughs> you know, to people yes. who are hungry, to people who are poor. And, you know, but, you know, reading, um, reading the memoir, you write about that. And it's, and it's not in a kind of poor me way. It's just, it's very often in passing. It's very often about school. You know, you're, you're hungry, you can't pay attention, you've, you've drifted off. Yes. Um, or you're sitting at the back of Jehovah's Witnesses and, and you're thinking about food all, all the, the time. time. And, and I, I wouldn't have written this memoir if my mother was alive. She would be absolutely devastated. Mm. I mean, she didn't feed us, don't get me wrong. And my father didn't feed us. But somehow you wouldn't let anyone know that, that mm. we were hungry. And we spent all of our time. I can remember, you know, the Beano. We used to get secondhand Beanos from mm. a wealthy neighbour. And so often the Beano, you know, one of the Dennis the Menace or something, he'd have an apple. I don't know if anyone remembers this. And the apple's got bits on the end and bits on the end, but he's eating the middle. I'll be like, why aren't you eating the, eat, eat the apple properly? There's bits still left on the apple. It used that, never mind the story. I'd be looking at Billy Bunter, what's he eating? What's Dennis the Menace eating? Yeah. Because it's a constant. And the way this government is at the moment and the way that the world is at the moment, certainly this country, there are children who are having my experience yeah. in this day and age. Yeah, and they no. shouldn't have that experience. There is nothing like when you're a child, you've got no agency, you cannot go and buy food, you haven't got any money, or you're ashamed, or at your friend's house. There is nothing like hunger. It's mm. so debilitating, it's so shaming, it affects all your life chances, what you learn at school, mm. how you interact with your peers, how you grow, mm. how you develop bodily, how you develop mentally, how you develop educationally. All of those things yeah. start with hunger and cold, both of which I experienced. Mm. And I rage about it, you know, and I try not to rage about it on Twitter. I'm like, don't keep going on about it. But it's a, it's a live issue. It's mm. a really serious, yeah. serious thing. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about, you know, history, your history there and then, you know, and, and I remember doing it, writing about the 80s, and I think it comforts people to think that this is the past, but of course, yeah. the reality is that it's the present. And I wonder how, you know, and this is, we'll talk about this afterwards with the drink, but it's interesting to me that, you know, you're both dealing with subjects which people feel are shameful and yes. should somehow be secret. You know, you shouldn't talk about, you shouldn't not just talk about illness, but you shouldn't talk about resenting people who are ill or feeling afraid of it or upset about it. And you shouldn't talk about being being poor, you know, and, and hungry and cold. And I wonder if the act of publishing the book will have an effect on how you feel about those things. Um, I don't think I felt shame about it from, for many years because it was nothing to do with me, how yeah. I was brought up. Yeah. And I've got four brothers and sisters and we talk about our parents and our weird upbringing. We always have... And I was talking to my brother about it the other day and he said, we laughed every day. And we did, mostly at my parents, mm. because they were very weird. Both yeah. of them were weird. Yeah. You know, we used to have, my mother worked as an auxiliary nurse at an uh, inner city hospital and she worked with black nurses. And she'd come, she always worked nights, so she'd come home sort of eight o'clock in the morning, we'd be downstairs foraging for breakfast. And she would say, those black nurses, you know, black women, you know what they're like. And we were like, Mom, <laughs> <laughs> it's 
three of us here. <laughs> yeah. Black women wouldn't even hear us. She'd carry on about black women this, black women that. And we'd be sort of looking at her like, God, I'm like, idiot. She'd go out, dad comes home, and he obviously had a bad day with a white passenger or something. White people, this, never trust a white man. We were like... <laughs> and and they, they never, ever, ever thought that was strange. They would talk, one of, they would talk to the side of us that yeah. was them. Yeah. And, and not even think about the other half. Mm. And we would be nudging each other, like kicking each other. Here he goes, here he goes. And we'd, la we'd go, what are white people like, Dad? Tell us about white people. Oh and he would just, we'd just he'd hang himself. Yeah. We'd go, oh, right, all white people. Yeah, okay, right. And then Mum, we'd do the same with Mum. Black women, they're terrible, aren't they, Mum? And she'd go, they are. And she never <laughs> even saw. She never saw us at all. No. And we would just wind her up and we would laugh at them. Very rarely laugh with them, but we laughed at them a lot. Is your dad still alive? No. No, they're, so they're no. both gone now. Yeah. So you feel able to kind of publish this? Completely. And I, it sounds like I, resent, I don't resent them. I feel a lot of affection. I've dedicated the book to my parents. Yeah. With the background that they had and the constrictions they had, the way they were brought up and how, how they understood the world, you know, they did the best they could and it wasn't very good. Yeah. You know, it wasn't very good, but thank God they got together. I'm here. Yeah. I've got fantastic brothers and sisters and I've had, still having a great life. That is the best possible ending to the story. <laughs> um, <laughs> questions for Pep. Oh, another question, John, question there. Question for you, John. I'm going two for two. Hi, Kit. Um, I want to ask you about identity, please. Uh, yeah. I, I suppose, as an aside, I know something about growing up in, in a mixed-race household. Yeah. A bit different in Norwich. You could walk for hours without seeing anyone who wasn't white, so it must <laughs> be different in Mosley. Um, it strikes me that the Jehovah's Witnesses try and impose an identity on you. Yes. By 16, you've moved out. Yes. When did you find out who you were and, and form your own identity? How did you escape from, from that? Um, well, specifically the Jehovah's Witnesses thing, because that, that, that is a question that we haven't actually talked about, which yeah. is this idea of being disfellowshipped, which is this extraordinary verb where you don't leave, you are No, left. you're thrown out. You're thrown out. So if you do anything wrong, you're thrown out in a very public ceremony where you're disgraced in front of the congregation. And then no Jehovah's Witness can ever speak to you again. But it's not that they don't speak to you like, oh, I'm not going to speak to you. You have to catch their eye and then look away. I am seeing you. I am choosing not to speak to you. Not, I can't see you, like we all do when we see someone we don't like. Um, it's like, yeah. uh, you? No. Oh my God. Um, so you're disgraced. I've managed to escape that. I don't know I mean, why I think this might change that. <laughs> <laughs> I really? think, that, you know, it's coming down the line. It's I mean, it's not like you wanted line. to go back anyway, no, is it? No, no, so. no, 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 um, no. But you've not, so you've not been disfellowshipped? No, but everyone else in my family has. <laughs> <All right. laughs> I've managed to escape. I don't know how I've managed to escape. You'd have to go there to be disfellowshipped, no? Oh no, you can be disfellowshipped in, in, in your absence, oh, right. uh, but normally it, it, it is in your presence. But you, you, if, if they can't find you, they will disfellowship you. In. That will happen to me when this comes out, yes, definitely. Really? You it's think? a badge of honour, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. Does that answer your question? She can't wait. <laughs> no, because we focused on Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay. Yeah, that was an aside. It was, it was, 
when did you find you? Yep. Before 16? Oh, don't know about last week, I think. <laughs> I, all the time, all the time, I think I change. Um, I'm very happy with the way I am now, but I change all the time. As I learn new things about the world and my response to the things that are going on in the world, mm. um, I learn more about myself. And I, I don't ever want to stop doing that. I'm very immature in that I never think I've got the answer or that I'm settled or this is me and I know what I'm doing. So I'm really open to change. I, I like to change and change my identity. We talked about you writing a memoir in the past and you said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. And it's really interesting that, that, that often it's endings, so deaths, changes, that, or the, the thought of a separation that prompts somebody to write a memoir, something big changes or something's over or ends. What, what was it for you? Someone asked me to do it and I had got to a difficult part in my novel. So oh, to a difficult part and you're not... <laughs> So you were like, so fuck it, I'll just write yeah, about me. Exactly. Yeah, you were, there's yeah. nothing deep and meaningful there. I'm just going to do it as a way of avoiding writing my fiction. No, literally. And also, when um, I was asked to, to write the memoir, and we all do this, you know, I've got, we've all got 20 anecdotes about our life, yeah. haven't we? And you trot them out and they get better over time and they get honed until they're funny and poignant and all the rest of it. Mm. So I thought, how hard can it be? Yeah. It'll be those 20 stories yeah. and I'll put them in a book at, absolutely not what happens mm. at all mm. it's um quite the journey i yeah. would say yeah. yeah hard work um it's not hard work to read i absolutely loved the book it's a joy um and i can't wait for everybody else out there to get their hands on it as well it's out in august right yes so um get it from your lovely local independent bookshop or from our shop online because we have one um please join me in thanking our two fantastic guests abby morgan <laughs> Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for coming out. Good night. Thanks for listening to our evening with Kit Duval. We really hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to pick up a copy of Without Warning and Only Sometimes, it's available now from your local indie, of course, or you can support our podcast by buying a copy through the Literary Salon Bookshop on uk.bookshop.org. And we've got some exciting live events coming up before the year is out. So to be first in line for tickets and for some rather good exclusive book giveaways, sign up to our newsletter on theliterarysalon.co.uk. As always, thanks for listening and join us again soon.